please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ruth 1, 1 through 22. If you would read with me the verses in bold. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilian. They were Aphrodites, Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Milan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I hope... Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Can you all hear me? Can you all hear me? All right, good morning again. All right. Thanks for being here. So much in life. Am I coming out? Can you hear me? Okay. So much in life is the result of, uh, of choices and decisions that we make, whether good or poor. Certainly there are times when a person deliberately chooses his or her destination. They are the master of their own fate, the captain of their own path. They are where they are because the decision was fully theirs. There's relief and satisfaction when the series of choices that, we, that were made have left them in a better position than they have realized, or regret and disappointment that often follow poor and careless choices in life. So much in life is the result of choices and decisions we make. But you and I both know that there are also times in life that the, when the destination is chosen for us. When there's no say, no decisions that are made, no choices that are given. We travel a path, perhaps one that we would never choose for ourselves even in a million years. No one chooses to have a crippling accident or choose to have terminal cancer. No one wishes to lose a father or a mother, to lose a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife too soon. No one. No one wishes a life of calamity or catastrophe or misfortune to fall on them or on anyone, particularly those they love. We would rather be the master of our own fate. The story found in the book of Ruth is very relatable. Although the book of Ruth is set in the ancient days of the judges, as the first verse tells us, the hardships that the characters of this story face uh, transcend time and culture. What it teaches us is that suffering is universal, that we all have uh, setbacks that we face in one form or another. And as human beings living in a fallen world, none of us are immune to the hardships and disappointments of life. There are times when we feel we are the victims of happenstance or the strange whims and caprice of the universe, and we wonder why bad things happen to good people, why bad things happen at all. And perhaps you may be able to relate to this, 
to the grievous events. Uh, and we all know that stuff happens. You may have guessed that we are in a new book, in a new sermon series, in a short book in the Old Testament called Ruth. We're beginning a short series that we're calling Unexpected Beauty. There are a series of unexpected twists and turns in the story, as many as any good story does, and this one begins with a twist. Within the span of the first five verses, the beginning five verses, a famine ravages the land of Judah, where a family is forced to relocate. A father dies, and then his firstborn, and then a second one also die. Leaving three widows to fend for themselves in a strange land far away from home. How does all this adversity fall on just one family? When you read the opening verses of this chapter of this book, there's not a lot of good that you find. It's dark, it's bleak, it's hopeless. Of the six people that we have uh, just been introduced to, we read the obituaries of three of them. First, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies, leaving her two sons. Naomi's survival plans to stay in Moab and arrange marriages for her two boys. They would be her retirement. They would take care of her in her old age. And in time, the boys marry a Moabite woman, and then those two sons, Malon and Kilion, die with no cause given to their death, particularly to us as we read the text. The fact that Naomi is done, uh, is alone, cannot be overstated so much so that the author mentions it twice. So in this patriarchal society, there's, this is a great loss. You're supposed to feel the devastation that Naomi feels. So in verse 3, the author says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And in verse 5, and both Malon and Kilian died, and that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, you get the point that, again, the author is trying to make is that Naomi is all by herself. In the space of a half a verse, Naomi's world comes crashing down as she is left alone. So that puts three women, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, in a very precarious situation. Things have gone from bad to worse. There are no government-sponsored welfare programs. There will help to be found no jobs for single widowed women in that society. The future looks desperate for Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. They cannot stay where they are and survive. Let me pause here for a second just to point out a few ironic things, ironic happenings in the first few verses of this book. First, you see the family, particularly Elimelech, who is from Bethlehem. You may know that place, and we talked about this before, but Bethlehem is uh, literally translated the house of bread. Bet meaning house and lechem meaning bread. It's the house of bread and there sh should have been food in Bethlehem. And yet they leave this house of bread or the city of bread 
and they traveled to a distant country to find bread or to find food for him and for his family. How ironic. Second, Elimelech makes a decision, ironically, the, the very reason to escape death, succumbs to death and death to three quarters of his immediate family. And in such a delicate situation as this, Naomi makes a decision to forge a path forward. Naomi is stuck in Moab, a, a widow with no hope of ever having another child, with two younger widows by her side. And these two younger women are not Jews, but Moabites. They're foreigners. Or perhaps Naomi is a foreigner in a foreign land. And so as far as Naomi is concerned, not only does she have no future, but neither do her daughters-in-law if they stay with her. So she decides to take matters into her own hands and return to the land of Judah because she has heard that there is bread there once again. But without subjecting her two daughters-in-law to the same fate, she releases them from any duty to her. And in the best interest of these two young women, she urges them to return to the families of origin to their parents' house and to find new husbands among their own people. And so Naomi says, go home, my daughters. Return to your own people and return to your own gods. At this point in the story, there are only women left. I think it just goes to show you how much stronger one gender is over the other. <laughs> And by Naomi's urging, by the time we reach verse 14, only two remain. There's Naomi, and then there's Ruth, in which the book of, this book that we're looking at uh, is called. Perhaps this is Naomi's testimony. Her autobiography might be entitled, From Everything to Nothing, or From Blessing to Bitterness, or From Fullness to Emptiness. Whatever you want, you can give an autobiography or a title to the autobiography that, again, here's a woman who has everything. She has, again, in her society, in her culture, she has two boys. And now she has nothing. I have a funny story. I have, a, I have an aunt who lives in Korea, and she had uh, three daughters. These are my cousins. And then when she was pregnant with her fourth uh, and found out that it was a, a girl, again, this is my aunt who gave birth uh, to my, my four cousins, uh, leaves the hospital and says, where's my son? Well, that's the culture. That's the culture that we find ourselves, especially when we look at the Old Testament. Naomi, in, in one sense, has everything. She has two sons. But then her two sons are gone along with her husband. And so in verse 13, you hear these words that Naomi declares that God has turned his hand against her. In verse 20, Naomi says, not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Again, this idea of, uh, of, of Naomi is, uh, is uh, translated, is, is, uh, her name is translated pleasant. And all of a sudden, she, she changes her name from, from pleasant to Mara, bitterness or bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord has brought calamity upon me? Naomi is going through a very difficult time, and again, that's an understatement. She has lost everyone. She is deeply discouraged. Not only that, but Naomi comes to this conclusion in verse 13 that the Lord has raised his hand against her. She tells her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, don't stay with me because everything in my life has turned to dust. Don't stay with me. I'm bad luck. God has something against me. Whatever happens, has happened to me perhaps will happen to you as well. She feels like the Lord has brought to her nothing but trouble, famine, exile, death, widowhood, childlessness. She thinks the Lord has become her enemy. She sees darkness behind and darkness ahead. And that's why she thinks that two women widows will be better off going back to their homes and back to their parents. Can you relate? Perhaps we haven't lost a, a spouse and our two children, but perhaps there's, there's been difficulty in our own life. I have a friend who lost their four-and-a-half-year-old less than two weeks ago. And, uh, and in her Facebook post, she says, I n- never knew days could be so long. Every minute, my goal is just to make it to the next minute. And everything seems wrong. I've been mainly trying to keep busy because when I'm too still at home, I feel the weight of my grief surrounding me entirely. How can I, sm- how can I smile and feel happiness for even a second when my baby is gone? I'm not sure how to continue to live. I'm trying, but I just, bear, I just honestly don't know how to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I guess all I can do is keep trying. You know, uh, suffering is universal. I mean, hardships and difficulties, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, you're young or old, whether you're from a, a part of the world uh, on the other side or, or this one, Pain and suffering and hardships and difficulties have no bias. Perhaps you've come this morning and you too are facing trials or hardships or difficulties that have come into your life and you found yourself asking the question, why? Or to what end? Or what purpose have these things happened to me? Or you found yourself saying things like, this isn't fair. I mean, you found yourself in this incredibly difficult season or this dark season or this winter season in your life that you would never wish upon yourself or anyone else. And we, sometimes as parents, we attempt by all means never to go through them. And if we can, we do all that we can to shield our loved ones from ever experiencing the same emotions and adversities that we have. We try to give our children a better life than we had. We give them gifts that we never had growing up as children. We protect them from unnecessary grief or pain. And that's what Naomi does. At least protect them from any further pain. 
or grief. Part of our challenge of reading this book is that we know how the story ends. We face the same issues when we read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. How, did, how much did Joseph know about the end of the story when his brothers cast him into the pits in Genesis 37? Perhaps nothing. Ask the same question when he was carted off by the Midianites and then sold as a slave to Potiphar. How much of the future did he know when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him and Potiphar had him thrown into jail? Or how much of the future did he know when the cupbearer promised to remember him but instead forgot about him while he sat in an Egyptian prison? The writer of the book of Ruth, I believe, wants us to learn something very simple and a very profound lesson that we may know the ending to the story, but that does not soften what we go through now. And Naomi is bitter, and she's bitter for a reason. We get a glimpse of her inner state when she tells the woman not to call her Naomi pleasant, but Mara, meaning bitter, who is responsible for this bitter state. And again, Naomi makes it very clear four times that it's God. Four times Naomi mentions God. God made me very bitter. God made me very empty. God opposed me. God afflicted me. And perhaps she has every right to be angry. And she has every right to be bitter. But perhaps her bitterness is misdirected. She has every reason to be angry and resentful. And perhaps in some small way she realizes that her misdirection of her anguish when she raises a good question, a key question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry when she uh, says, uh, again, you'll, you'll read this in the section about, again, about the sovereignty of God. And so for us, we ask ourselves the same question. Can we be bitter and angry and still be a follower of God? Can we as followers of Christ still harbor feelings like this? I think yes. I think the gospel creates space. I think the gospel creates space for a plethora of emotions. I think the gospel creates space for us to feel the emotions of, of life and still call ourselves followers of Jesus. It allows, us, allows for us to be a follower of Christ and also be angry and bitter. You see, if we answer no, perhaps it's because we have not suffered very much. If you have ever known great loss, then you know Naomi's heart. She is a bruised believer. And the deeper the bruise, the longer it takes to heal. Naomi, I think, as I read this section, especially in chapter 1, I think still believes in God, even in a foreign land, cut off from her very own people. 
If she is bitter at the Lord, at least she has not turned away from him. She is a bruised believer, brokenhearted at what she has lost. And if we callously say that she got what she had coming to her, we only reveal how little we understand about the heart of God. Because in the darkness that Naomi feels of, of loss and grief and pain, God provides a glimmer of hope. There's Ruth. Commentator Ian Dagwood says Ruth was a nobody, an outsider a Moabite of all things. There was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. These are his words. He writes, conventional wisdom shouted for Ruth to follow the way of Orpah, the most likely way of worldly security and significance, but Ruth was not Orpah. And there was nothing conventional about her. She would not let Naomi go alone into her empty future. So what does Ruth do? It's interesting because when you read the text, again, it's a simple word. And again, it says that Ruth clung. Ruth clung to Naomi. And this word clung is, and again, as I do some research, it's, it's this word for for covenant commitment. It's a covenant loyalty that Ruth has for her mother-in-law. And nothing, and no one could send her away. Ruth poured out her heart to Naomi. She's committed her life to Naomi's God, not the God of the Moabites. Here's an astonishing act of surrender and self-sacrifice. Ruth was laying down her entire life to serve Naomi. In verse 16, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For, you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me, uh, death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. There's a little thing that we have in our Korean culture. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen two Koreans eat at a restaurant together, but they fight over the bill at the very end. Um, it's like that with, uh, with everything. It's not just the bill, but it's, it's everything. There's a back and forth in some cultures, and you may know uh, some of this, but there's a, there's a back and forth. Uh, you know, when my, when my relatives, when my aunts and uncles would give us money, we were taught to say, no, that's okay, that's okay. And then you kind of go about this three times. Uh, you have to do it three times. And on the third one, you can say, thank you. And, you know, you receive it. <laughs> and you almost see this kind of interplay between uh, uh, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. 
They both say, uh, no, we will not leave you. And then Naomi responds back, no, 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 go back to your own people. And Orpah says, okay. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I think there's a great part uh, in the gospel here that uh, we read that, that we see uh, Orpah missing out. But we see Ruth saying no. And there's this back and forth exchange between Naomi and, and Ruth where finally Naomi can't respond but just be silent. And so she says no more. The same author and commentator that I just mentioned, the book of Ruth, entitles this chapter, again, this chapter in the, uh, in the commentary, he entitles it, Grace at the Bottom of the Barrel. For if you find yourself where all has come crashing down, and there's pain, and there's hurt, and there are tears of great sadness, my friends, don't be surprised if God puts you through the fires or if God puts you through the winter of your souls because some graces grow best at the bottom of the barrel. When we read this section, we begin to see perhaps the significance of why God allows us to pass through the fires of trial and difficulty, because, my dear friends, it may not have anything to do with you. Perhaps there's a greater plan. Perhaps there's something far greater and, and far more imaginable, far greater than we can envision that God has planned that we cannot quite see just yet. There are lessons to be learned in this first chapter. There's gospel gems hidden in the first chapter of the book of, of Ruth. If anything, the gospel reminds us that God never abandons us to our sin or the effects of other people's choices. He has acted in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and to redeem his creation. To be sure, Naomi's situation looked bleak, but God's finest moments in her life was about to begin. And surely God is at work in the situations of your life to accomplish his good plan for his own glory and for our good. If anything, Ruth is about the sovereignty of God. If anything, the four chapters, 85 verses and all that we read the, the book of Ruth, it's really about the sovereignty of God. That how, how God is what, what we think is, is, is chaos and bleakness and hopelessness. There is some sort of plan and, and an orchestrating of all things for God's glory and for our good. We may not see it, but, but God, he controls all things. Our God is sovereign. And if anything, Ruth is about the sovereignty of God but more so than the sovereignty. Again, John Piper says, uh, God's sovereignty is his right and power to do as he decides to do. But he says, providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. In other words, what John Piper is saying is that sovereignty is, is God's will to do whatever he pleases, but, but providence 
is, is, is that he orchestrates all these things that he has the power to do for a purpose, for a plan. Wise and purposeful sovereignty. You may look at your life and say, this is utter chaos. And I can't seem to understand what's happening around me. Perhaps when we look at, at God and say, God, why? Why these difficulties or why these hardships? And yet it's, it's strange, but God has in his, in his wisdom everything laid out perfectly. The next two points that I have are, are straight from the commentary. So if you want, you can borrow my book, but I wanted to make sure that I, I share with you that these are uh, Ian Dagwood, Dr. Ian Dagwood's uh, uh, thoughts. And again, I think I couldn't say it any better, so I just copied them down. And so uh, points number two and three are, are right from the book. He says, the gospel answers our doubts that God really has our best interests at heart. The gospel answers our doubts that God really has our best interests at heart. He says, who left his father's house to come and live with us, even to the point of death? Against whom did the Almighty, again, God's hand, truly go out in bitter judgment? Even though he had no sin of his own that would have deserved such punishment, Jesus is the answer Naomi needs. And Jesus is the answer we need. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He took God's Old Testament declaration, I will be with you, and lived it out to the fullest extent. He left the glories of heaven in order to say to us, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Christ died, Christ was buried, and in that he has clung to us, uniting with us in his death and resurrection, and uniting our souls with him in eternal union with him. Number three, the gospel shows us that his grace is not merely for covenant insiders who have lost their way. It is also for men and women from all nations and backgrounds, the unclean as well as for the culture, the unwashed as well as for the religious. There are no more Moabite outsiders in light of the cross. All are welcome to come, whatever their background, to be received into the family of God, the grace of God that we have received is extended by us to others so that all may hear of the good news of redemption in Christ for all people. My friends, God makes no mistakes. There is no error with God. There does not happen something that he did not foreknow, that he, that something happened by accident or by happenstance, or the whims of a universe. My friends, our God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. 
And the same was true when he sent his son to the cross. As Jesus was led to the cross, he did it on his own accord. Jesus laid aside his life. He voluntarily was crucified to a cross to show us the extent of God's love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, God does not make This is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel that uh, wayward sinners might come back to him. That he might provide a way, a glimmer of hope. That he might provide a way to eternal life. That we might be clung to him forever. Not by our strength, but the the strength that God provides. You know, it's never how hard or how desperately I cling to him. It's about how how firmly and how fastly he holds on to you and me. My friends, that's the gospel. 